Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we thank you for the chance to be together tonight. We thank you for the work that we have seen you do in our city and in our church, and we pray that you would use this time tonight to open our eyes to how we can participate in your work and really how we can, um, what we can do when things feel bleak and things feel dark. And so we lift this time to you and ask that you speak to your, through your word, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Amen. Some familiar words to, to many of you, um, written some time ago. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was a season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was far, so far like the present period that some of the noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Charles Dickens wrote that in his beginning of A Tale of Two Cities. That was written in 1859. Welcome to America in 2018. <laughs> um, we, similar things could be said, especially the ending that, that, even the, that some of the noisiest of authorities insisted on this time being received for good or evil in a superlative degree of comparison only. And so um, we, we see this and we feel this. Some of you have felt this coming in tonight. For some, it feels like the best. For some, it feels like the worst. For some, the age of light. For others, the age of darkness. And so in that, today we, we come to a text that helps us to see how the church and how God's people can respond to dark times and difficult times. Now, I do want to be careful here because I think that, that America, in American Christianity and in our context, we tend to have things pretty good. I mean, global Christianity faces a real physical threat of persecution that's at a different scale than most of us have faced in our lives. But still, there is a darkness that has crept over our nation and over the church. And so today, we see, again, some help for the church and what we do in dark times. We're in Acts chapter 12. If you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Acts 12. Um, we are, this is the last sermon in this second section of a series in the book of Acts where we've seen the word of God spreading. And so already in, our, in this section, we've really seen that that has been the theme, that the word of God has advanced and multiplied and spread. And it did so in spite of dark times, in spite of persecution that forced people out. And so we saw Philip's ministry breaking down ethnic and national barriers and reaching across to Samaritans and an Ethiopian man. We, we saw Jesus save and call to be his servant, the man who was trying to kill the church and kill Christians, who oversaw the death of the first Christian martyr. We've, saw, we've seen the Apostle Peter be challenged by God himself in a vision to go and cross the ethnic boundary to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. 
and the response of the tensions that led to back home. We saw the planting of a church that became a church-planting church, and now we come to chapter 12, which we will cover most of tonight. And it starts out pretty bleak. And so this is what we read in Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him into prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer was made for, for him was made to God by the church." Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the doors were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on sandals. And he did so. He said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know what was, being done by the, what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading out into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose na other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked at the door of the gateway, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so and kept saying, it, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And Herod searched for him and did not find him. And he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a lot going on in one chapter. This story, I love this story, and I'm excited to walk through this one together today. I mean, poor Rhoda. This girl ran down excited to see Peter, and her name was recorded in the Bible so that for 2,000 years we know that she's the one that left him standing at the gate, <laughs> knocking in the cold of night after getting out of jail. 
Um, but it, there's, there's so much to unpack here. I think to start with, though, we, I want us to feel, we, we know the story and how, where it gets to, but I want us to feel the narrative tension that's built in the first four verses. Things are not good. It's dark. There are dark days for the church in the first verses of this chapter. And look at what happens. James is killed. James, the, the apostle, this is the first apostle to be killed in, in, in persecution. He was killed, and he was killed by Herod, who really was a well-liked leader, but he was also somebody that Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us, was, was subject to follow the whims of people because he liked being popular. And so this was a move that gained him some popularity, and the sword of government that God entrusts to those he appoints as leaders, Herod used to kill the apostle James. So the first apostle is martyred. Peter is in jail, imprisoned, on the Passover weekend, the same weekend, years later, but the same weekend that Jesus had been arrested and killed during the same feast and festival. And, and he's chained down and guarded by soldiers. And his fate, it really, the holiday, was the only reason that he wasn't killed on the spot. And so they were holding him, ready to execute him the next day. And so James is dead, Peter is in prison, and Herod is winning. He's triumphing over the church. It feels, at the beginning of chapter 12, like the persecution that we read about in chapter 8, at the beginning of our series this, this fall, it feels like it's finally coming to its fruition. Like we read about in chapter 8 that the persecution was so intense in Jerusalem after Stephen's death that it just ratcheted up in violence and intensity as people were being thrown into prison and, and that it scattered the church, all except the apostles who kind of hunkered down. But now there's an apostle dead, one in prison, and it, it, it had to have looked like this is it. There were dark days for the church. Now, again, for us here, I think trying to understand, how does this come to us then? We don't face the kind of global church persecution that we see, but I do think these are darkening days for the church in our nation. Individualism has triumphed. It's sprung up in, with narcissism in every sphere, in politics, and in business, and media, and entertainment, and it's seeped into the church. The church's prophetic voice has been chained down. That it's imprisoned and cloaked in a dark underground, not because it's an actual individual that's been thrown into prison, but the church's prophetic voice has been chained down too often by a pursuit of power, attempts to wield the sword so that it cannot speak against the powers that now control it. And Christians and whole churches have become effectively dead. There's a rapid decline. Churches have been lulled to sleep. And our own fierce independence can make us feel like maybe we don't need God to intervene, or we don't believe that he can. Now, so I don't want to fall into calling every setback persecution, but also don't want us to fall into complacency and dullness of heart and pretend like everything's great right now. John Stott said here that here then were two communities in Acts 12, the world and the church arrayed against one another, each wielding an appropriate weapon. On the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword and of the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. So this is the response that we see. What is the response of the people of God to these dark moments in the church's life? Well, in dark days, God's people pray. 
We see this in, in verse 5, that so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Later on in verse 12, we see that when he went to the house of Mary, that, he, that they were many people of the church gathered together there, and they were praying. And so in these dark moments, God's people turned to prayer. They didn't turn toward activism. They didn't turn toward trying to fight back. They turned to petition a God who they believed existed and was interested in coming to their aid. And so we're going to look tonight at at the four characteristics that we see of God's people responding to dark times in prayer. The first is to pray watchfully. I love this. Peter had 16 soldiers assigned to him. A raggedy fisherman from Galilee was thrown into a Roman prison, and this authenticates, this is a Roman practice. It tells us that Roman authorities were involved, not just the, the Jewish ruler, governor under Rome, that Roman authorities were now involved with Peter, but that he had, there were four squads, it tells us, assigned to him. That's four groups of four soldiers. They would have been on three-hour shifts to guard Peter. And so the way that it worked was for, for prisoners of, of extraordinary interest or, or that they were worried about, that they would have two soldiers sit in the prison cell with the prisoner, with Peter, chained to him. They then had two soldiers at the door to the cell guarding the door. So the four men, and then they would be on three-hour rotations consistently through the entire night. And so that's what the Apostle Peter was experiencing. And obviously, it seems like his reputation for nighttime prison breaks had preceded him. Um, we see this earlier on. We've read this earlier in Acts that Peter was in jail and he already broke free once and God opened the door for him. And so, so that preceded him. They have 16 soldiers, trained Roman guards to guard him. But look at the response of the church. You notice that it's not Peter who gets any attention here? We have no indication that Peter had any expectation that he was getting out of this situation. We don't have any record of what Peter did. We don't have record of Peter singing hymns or praying like, or evangelizing like Paul did in the, in the jail in Philippi later on in Acts where you know, he was singing hymns as he was sitting in jail and then an earthquake broke the prison open and he stayed in jail. Like that, that isn't the story here. Peter was asleep. But while he was asleep, guarded by four sentries, 16 men on three-hour shifts, so four at a time, the church responded by posting sentries of their own. There was a watchfulness in prayer. They were praying all night together so that when Peter got out, he came and they were awake and praying together. It was a coordinated effort by the people of the church for watchfulness to pray for their brother in Christ and and their leader, posted to watch carefully and to plead constantly. They were reflecting what Jesus urges his people to do in prayer, what Peter had heard Jesus say that he should pray like. And so they were persistent and watchful in their prayers. Now, I don't know what it is for us. I feel like for some of us that, that really emphasize God's sovereignty in our theology, at times can use that as a reason, as a disincentive to pray. Like we think, well, God's sovereign, so he's got this, and I'm just going to say it once, because basically our prayers end up sounding a lot like, hey, Lord, I'm really concerned about this thing, and you kind of know that, and so I don't know what else to say. (laughs) But I hope you can deal with it for me. 
And so we get stuck, and our prayers become boring. It's sometimes because our prayers are legitimately boring. Like, can we be real about that? That, that there are times when I've had to stop and go, like, I'm bored by my listening to myself right now. There's got to be something more interesting that I can come up with here. But I think that's because we don't actually believe in God's sovereignty to intervene sovereignly in our lives. And so Jesus calls us to a persistence. In Luke chapter 11, our author Luke captured some of his teaching to his disciples on prayer. And so Jesus, they asked, you know, he, he, or he said to them, when you pray, here's how you should pray. And he gives them the Lord's prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. But he went on then to say this. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed and I cannot get up and give you anything. If you show up on my front stoop overnight tonight and start banging on our door saying, hey, Bill, can you get out of bed and give me some bread? I will say no. <laughs> and I may consider calling the police. <laughs> like, I get this, especially when you have kids in your home, and you're like, do you know what happened? Little kids especially. My kids would sleep through it now. But when you have little kids in your house, like, do you understand what it is for them to wake up at night? You will not sleep again, maybe ever. And so... Jesus pulls an illustration here that, that hits right between the eyes, but he says, I tell you that he won't get up and give you anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how, much, how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so Jesus here is encouraging us. He's saying, you need to come before God as a father and petition him and plead with him and come with impudence. Is the word that's used here. See, prayer is not a formal approach to a distant deity. Prayer is a brash persistence in petitioning a friend. And so here, hospitality was huge in the ancient Near East, but, but there's, no one is going to get up in the middle of the night when they have kids asleep in their house, but he, the friend finally rises because of the impudence of the man that's asking. Now, that's, that may not be a word that you use every day, so a little bit of understanding. That's a brashness, a brazen, insolent, almost disrespectful boldness. That is not how most of us approach God in prayer. Many of us, and I fight this too, most, many of us have like a prayer language, not like tongues. Some of you do that, and I, I praise God for that gift. But I'm talking about like the way that our, our tone changes. When we pray to God, it, it doesn't sound like when we talk to each other. Somehow we slide into like King James English, <laughs> and our tone changes. So we don't, we don't cry out to God in, in, in sorrow and despair and say, like, Lord, where are you? I need your help. Instead, we're like, my heavenly Father... <laughs> God, I just come before you today. And you're like, who's, you don't talk like that. 
what does that reflect about what we think about God and what we believe about God? Jesus tells us to be impudent, to be desperate, to be brash, to be, but to have a trust of real provision. And I think we see that in Acts 12 in the people of the church. They're up all night, posted as sentries in watchfulness, pleading on behalf of, of the apostle Peter and pleading on behalf of the church. And so what would it look for, like for us to be more watchful in prayer together as a church? A few quick ideas. One, it would mean that we actually spend more time praying together in our community groups. I am the worst community group leader in the church about this. In our community group, I can't tell you how many weeks, and I had, like, like some of you have been in community groups I've led, <laughs> I can't tell you how many weeks, you know, people legitimately actually think they want to leave by nine. I say think they want to leave by nine because I have a better plan for their lives. <laughs> and so it happens so consistently that all of a sudden it's 8.45, and I go, oh my gosh, our discussion ran long. Again, that's so shocking. Sorry, guys, let's do a lightning round of prayer requests. Please make them personal. We'll share prayer requests. And then it's like, okay, it's 9.08. I'm just going to close this in prayer tonight, and we can pray for each other through the week. Are my groups the only groups that experience that? All right. So, (laughs) CG leaders, I'm not just trying to shame you. I'm outing myself on this, too. But what it means is we should act, if, we were, if we were watchful in prayer together, it would mean that we actually spent more time praying together, that it's worthwhile for the time, that there might be nights that we run long and run over schedule because we so value that time, and it means that we also are willing to be more efficient in other aspects of our gatherings so that we make that time. I think if we were more watchful in prayer, it would mean, too, that we get a focus beyond our individual circumstances. Typically, the prayer requests that we share with each other, myself included here, again, I'm, I'm in, in the same place. Often, our prayer requests that we share with people that we're close to are focused on the things happening in our individual lives. How often are we praying kingdom prayers? Really praying like Jesus called us to, Lord, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in D.C. as it is in heaven. I think it would mean we had more personal discipline, that it would mean we engaged more personally and responsibly. I think it would mean a greater corporate dependence on God to move. I want our church to continually cultivate a holy desperation so that we're watchful in our prayer. And so in dark times, it it drives us to that, but let's commit together to pray watchfully. Second characteristic is pray earnestly. This is the only time, and so this is in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And and so this is the only time this word appears in Acts explicitly. There's a form of this. This root word appears, though, back in, in Luke chapter 22, and it's used when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the moment where he was looking forward to his own arrest and his death, knowing that he was going to be arrested and killed and bear the wrath of God for all of humanity sin, and he was pleading with God, earnestly praying, asking his disciples to pray with him watchfully, and they didn't. They fell asleep, and he came to him three times saying, guys, I need you to wake up. You need to be awake. Please, do you understand what's happening tonight? And, and they kept falling asleep, but Jesus was praying, and it was so intense that he was sweating like drops of blood, pleading with God, his father, saying, saying please take this cup from me. 
I don't, I don't know if I can carry this through, but, but if you won't take this cup from me, if there's no other way, then not my will, but your will be done. That's the language of earnestness here, that the church is coming before God and pleading with him. You see, our earnest, the earnestness of our prayer life will show what we really believe about God. This is true, like we were just talking about, the, the, why we fall into prayer voices and strange King James English language and, and precocious religious nonsense where we turn into flowery, they, like we don't speak that way, is, is I think because we think that God is a distant deity that can be manipulated in providing our, for our desires if we use language that he wants to hear. And so we don't know how to approach him as our dad. I think for some of us, this is why you don't pray at all, because we don't think it does anything. And that's the broader view of our world. This is why if you go and follow the hashtag thoughts and prayers, it's not real positive about prayers. Granted, I have no idea what it means to send somebody your thoughts. That's weird. And I don't know that I want my thoughts to be sent to you. Like, I don't even understand all my thoughts. Some of my thoughts, I try to get out of my head as quick as I can because they shouldn't be there. And I don't, like, I, that's a weird thing. Like, what am I, you know, when you're saying, I'm sending you my thoughts, I'm thinking about scrolling to the next picture on the social media feed. Like, I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat tonight because I'm hungry and it's the evening service and that's what I do. And so, it, I'm gonna say, we can keep going, but I, <laughs> but... There is a jadedness against the idea that praying does anything. But if you're a Christian, if you believe that Jesus is God incarnate and the death that he died was in your place and that, that it tore the veil of the temple, opening the way for you to approach the creator God, the sovereign being over all things, directly and personally, and that he hears you, that is a miraculous thing to believe. And prayer itself is a miracle. H.B. Charles, a pastor, said, prayer is our Christian duty. It's an expression of submission to God and dependence on him. And for, for that matter, prayer is arguably the most objective measurement of our, of our dependence upon God. Think of it this way. The things you pray about are the things you trust God to handle. The things you neglect to pray about are the things you trust you can handle on your own. And so when we should be crying out in the middle of the night because we're desperate, because we have nothing to offer but only come in need, we're actually at a place in that dependence to see God move and act. All of our activism, all of our work, all of our efforts, all of the work that we do, even the work of the Lord that we do in the power of our flesh rather than the power of his spirit will accomplish nothing if not accompanied by God's action. And so whatever concern you're most passionate about, whatever you invest the majority of your time into and your emotional energy into, the most powerful action you can engage in is to pray to a God who can act. The only real way that change can happen is by God's action, and, and yet we turn to him only in passing ways and, and work harder to do more as if we're going to accomplish things and we keep trying the same things over and over and over again, expecting for the results to finally come through. In Psalm 140, um, 127, we, we can read about um, 
Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It's in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. If we want anything in our lives to amount to anything lasting, we've got to turn to God to be the one who acts. Tony Evans said, prayer is not simply talking to God. Instead, prayer is asserting earthly permission for heavenly interference. Dr. Evans in that sermon goes on to describe that in prayer, we have the ability and the opportunity to declare God's word back to him and ask him to fulfill the promises that he has made. And so we need to pray watchfully and pray earnestly. Third, pray corporately. The church came together all night, many of them, it says in verse 12. So they came together. And so let me be clear on this. We solitude is important. Pursuing personal prayer is important. And Jesus would, would go off and, and escape the crowds and go off to seek the fellowship of the, of the Father and the Holy Spirit as he went off alone to pray. And he also would pray with the disciples. And so, yes, we need to find ways to unbusy our lives. We need to find ways to seek stillness and quiet before God for the sake of our own souls. But there's also a consistent theme throughout the book of Acts that we see the church gathered together to practice these disciplines and gathered together praying together. And so again here, I love that it's, it isn't Peter's urgent prayer here. We don't have a moment where it's like, okay, Peter is in prison and he has a vision before God and God says to him, I've got this and Peter, you've petitioned me and because of your prayers and approach to me, now I'm responding. Peter is asleep. But it's the church gathered together corporately, praying together to petition on Peter's behalf. We need to hear this because we need to consistently commit ourselves to gather together for prayer. If you're a member of Redemption Hill, we have quarterly members meetings that most of what we do in those meetings is to pray together. The format of those changed. When we first started those meetings, we did all kinds of things and had all kinds of ways that we created that didn't lead to the greater unity of the body of Christ. But now in those meetings, we primarily pray together. Get some reports from our pastors and leaders on what's happening in the church and to, and to spend time sitting and praying together. And my hope is, if you're a member of Redemption Hill, that those quarterly moments are, are priorities for you because you know that this is a, a chance for the church to come together in prayer. But prayer meetings are typically the fastest way to not get people to show up for stuff. Like it's, it's funny. Like We can throw, throw a women's event and not even tell the ladies what's going on, and almost everyone will come. It's, it's just add water, <laughs> and, and, when, and people want to show up, just to hang out and connect with each other, and it's beautiful. There is a hunger for community among the women of the church. Men's conference is, we've got a team planning our men's conference for the spring, and we have to think through marketing strategies and convincing guys, like, this is worth your time, guys. Look at the speaker we're bringing in, and the topic, and the material, and here's the activities. And guys are like, I don't know if I want to do that activity. I mean, you're going to ditch the whole thing for that? And, and, so it, and then it's the day of, and we're still like, like calling and texting guys, like, are you coming to this thing? Maybe. Come on, fellas. But listen, we also have 
on the first Sunday of every month, and we talk about it every month leading up to it in our announcements, we have a gathering to pray for the church and for the advancement of God's kingdom in the city that meets in the basement of the church office and typically has three to six people that come. Now, I'm not just trying to guilt you into going because if everybody showed up, it would be a logistical nightmare and you'd be praying in the median of Pennsylvania Avenue, which I'm actually all for, so maybe I am advocating that. But what I'm saying is there's something here that's reflected about where our priorities lie and how we see the importance of corporate prayer together. And so I want us to value praying watchfully and earnestly, but also praying corporately. Charles Spurgeon, an incredible preacher in the Victorian era of London, said, well, you may try to do without prayer meetings if you like, but my solemn conviction is that as these decline, the Spirit of God will depart from you and the preaching of the gospel will be of small account. The Lord will have the prayers of his people go with the proclamation of his gospel if it is to be the power of God unto salvation. So we need to pray corporately. Fourth, pray expectantly. I love this passage because no one expected it to happen. Like, even though they'd seen Peter break out before, things looked bleak. It was dark. It was a dark moment. James was dead. Judgment was looming for Peter. He was headed toward the same fate. And I, just look at the, the reaction of these people. So Peter, a light bursts into Peter's prison, doesn't wake him up. You see that? The angel had to strike him in the side. Like, get up, you dummy. <laughs> like, don't you see what's happening here? The chains fall off his wrists, and do you see this? He says, hey, get up, um, get dressed, put on shoes. Peter, you're going to need your coat. I, this is, like, I, I feel like this is what parenting is like. It's so often in the mornings, we're like, hey, you have to wear shoes again today. <laughs> Please put on your shoes. Do you have your coat? Do you have your key for your bike lock that's locked to the fence out front? Do you have, do you have your backpack? You know, you're going to school. Like, do you, you know, there's the grogginess of mourning, and this is the Apostle Peter with an angel who's like, come on, dude. Put on your shoes. <laughs> we have to go. Peter didn't even realize that it wasn't a vision until he got outside the city gate, and the angel disappears, and he goes, oh my gosh. I'm out of jail. <laughs> like, he's, he's shocked by the whole thing. And then he shows up to the prayer meeting of the church, and nobody, ex they were so, and Rhoda was so excited that she didn't let him in. She goes upstairs, and they, and they say, hey, you're out of your mind. That's not even a paraphrase. That's in the ESV. You are out of your mind, girl. I added the girl. And, and they, they say, you know, it, it's got to be his angel. Now, listen, I did lots of research this week. We have no idea what they were thinking when they said those, that phrase. Different commentators are like, well, there was a belief that guardian angels would take on the appearance of their host. And we're like, we don't know if guardian angels are a thing, so don't know. Maybe. Um, some people said, well, maybe they thought Peter was already executed, and so this was his spirit showing up, but then I don't know why it would be angel. Like, I, I don't, we don't know what it means here, but there is something that we can take from their response. The bottom line, I think, is that they, the people of the church, and, and Peter at this point, had found ways to explain away the reality of what God was doing in, so that they, they could put it in terms they understood. And that's a word for us today. We have a persistent itch 
to explain away the goodness and grace and beauty and provision of God and the work he's doing in our lives, in our city, in our church, and we explain it away with terms and reasoning we can understand and even things we can control, especially when things go good. I find this in my own heart. Do you guys ever feel this way, that when things go well in your lives, when things go the way you thought they would go or even better than you thought they would go, your response is, my response is typically to go, yeah, that's the way it should have gone. And not to go, Lord, you've opened up a door and provided in ways that I had hoped for. Thank you. And instead, when things go badly or not like we hoped, when suffering comes into our lives, we have a tendency to say, what is going on, God? Where are you in this? What are you doing? This isn't the way it's supposed to go. We've got it upside down, and we have since the fall and since human rebellion and sin. We need to see that the biblical perspective on our lives is that we have, are suffering the consequences of a world that is broken by human sin and rebellion. And when that consequence drives us to greater dependence on God, then it's actually better for us in the long run. If our entire lives don't go the way we want, our lives are filled with suffering, but in the end we get Jesus, we've still won. If, if everything goes the way we want in our lives and we get to the end and we don't have Jesus, we haven't, we haven't come out on the better side. And so we get this mixed up, but we have a tendency to find ways to explain God's provision and goodness and kindness and grace in ways that we can understand and control. We need to pray expectantly. And the more we have a posture of thankfulness and gratitude in our lives, the more, we'll, the more we recognize the goodness and kindness and grace of God that's around us every single day, the more expectant we will become in prayer and the more we will be able to see God moving, not because he isn't moving now, but because our hearts will be tuned to see his grace. The more that, and then the more that we'll believe that he is a good father who wants to give good gifts to his children, that we're not going to come to him and say, hey, can I have a fish? And he goes, here's a snake. In dark days, God's people pray watchfully, earnestly, corporately, and expectantly. And here's the beauty of this text, is that light overcomes the darkness. It burst into Peter's prison cell. It, do you notice the part that Peter played in his own salvation? He was asleep. That was it. Like, get up. Put on your shoes. We gotta go. Get your coat. When he reports back, he, they open up the doors. He comes in. He says, this is what has happened. And he says, he says and Peter continued knocking. They opened. They saw, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Peter doesn't claim any credit for this. Now, I mean, this for me isn't the way that I would want this story to go down if I'm the Apostle Peter. I would, I would want to have like a Jason Bourne story. What happened? Well, the angel made the chains fall off, and I took out four sentries, <laughs> four Roman guards, and I just took them down and escaped, got to the city gates, and just went, Phew, and they opened. That's not how it went down for Peter. The Lord saved him. He had no explanation for his salvation. He was sitting in darkness and in chains, and light broke in that freed him to go and escape and to be in the presence of God's people. This is the testimony of every Christian 
for 2,000 years since. That on our own, we are sitting in darkness, alone, asleep, and chained down by our own sin, awaiting our own death that's just around the corner. Jesus came as the ultimate Passover lamb. As he passed over, this feast was a celebration of Israel's freedom from chains and bondage in Egypt as God came in and saved them. And it was the blood of a lamb that protected them from his judgment. Jesus was arrested leading into the Passover celebration. And he came not so that he could be delivered, but that he could lay himself down as the Passover lamb so that we could be delivered. It's only because, of the, because light had broken into the darkness in the person of Jesus Christ and because he laid himself down that the chains have, been, have fallen off of our arms and that we have been freed to, from, from the prison of our own bondage to sin and freed to life in his presence and with his people. Light has broken through in the darkness. And this is our hope. Here, Peter was freed from prison. Then Herod is struck down. The man who had raised the sword against the church, he's struck down. He, he stands up. Josephus tells about this same story. And so we see it even from Josephus' account outside of Scripture, a Jewish historian that said that he was wearing a robe that was interlaced with silver. In, in, when this happened, and that he stood up and his pride got the best of him, Josephus tells us that Herod was standing in, in, in this moment and had instantly had intense abdominal pain and died five days later. Luke tells us it was an angel of the Lord that struck him down because he didn't give God glory, that he was eaten by worms and then died. And there's actually ancient Near East, known conditions in the ancient Near East where people had, would have worms in their abdomens who would, would, would encircle themselves around people's intestines and knot themselves up so that it would block things off and it would lead to intensely painful and it was fatal. And so God struck down Herod standing in the midst of his own glory and pride. And did you see how the chapter ended? The word of God increased and multiplied. John Stott said here, at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage, arresting and persecuting church leaders. At the end, he is himself struck down and dies. The chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and, try, and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, their empire will be broken off and their pride abased. See, church, this is our hope, is that light breaks into the darkness that just as God delivered his people from captivity in Egypt by the blood of a lamb, that just as Peter was delivered from prison by an angel of the Lord in a flash of light, and that Jesus came, the ultimate Passover lamb, whose blood makes the wrath of God pass over us, who rose on the dawn of the third day as light broke through the darkness once and for all. 
And that's the hope that drives us to pray in the darkest of hours, the darkest of days, that we can come to God watchfully and earnestly, corporately, calling on the one who can intervene and the only one who can make light burst into the darkness. And so let's commit ourselves to pray. This is our great hope. And with the hope that as we do so, we can trust that the Word of God will multiply and increase and that we can be a part of Jesus building His church knowing that the gates of hell can't prevail against it. We're going to take just a couple of minutes tonight to pray together. And so I want to invite you to do as you feel comfortable to do. If you can turn with people around you and pray with the people that are immediately around you, don't talk about what to pray, just pray. If you're, if you're not comfortable with that and you just want to pray quietly, you can do that and just sit and pray. If you've never prayed before, prayer is talking to God. And through Jesus, we believe that we can talk directly to God. And so you can just sit and pray in your mind or pray quietly We believe that he'll hear you. For some of you tonight, you may need to pray that that the light of the gospel will break into the darkness of your own life and circumstances that you're facing right now. I believe that God is able to make that happen. And so let's just take a couple of minutes to pray as a church, and I'll close us in a couple of minutes. Let's pray.
And Father, there are few sounds as sweet as the murmur of your people in prayer. Would you stir in us by your spirit to be more watchful and more earnest, to pray corporately and expectantly? We have such clear evidence that you can move in ways that go beyond our hopes and expectations, that you can shatter the darkness with light. We want to see your word increase and multiply in our city. And we want to be a part of it. Would you stir in us to be a people of prayer that are turning consistently to you, that, that our preaching of the gospel would be no small thing, but would be the revolution that you have made it to be? And thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you that in Jesus you have shattered the chains and bondage of sin. And that we don't come together to celebrate our own greatness and ability to free ourselves, but we come together in need of a great Savior who laid himself down for us but was raised and now lives. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray tonight. Amen.